This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. Good morning. You can all hear me okay? We thought we were gonna be ambushed again by Zoom this morning. We got a menacing message that they were, we had to update to 5.0 or else. So I wasn't sure if I actually did it or not. I thought I did. So far, so good. I'm so happy to see you. Thank you so much for being here, each one of you. Um, we're still working out a few of the kinks in terms of timing, it's a little bit earlier than we said the Dharma talk would be. So I'm apologizing in advance for anybody who, you know, comes in a little bit late. And maybe some of you have noticed that um, Kinhin is now just five minutes in order to make time for uh, chanting the repentance and taking refuge. Three extra bows we're doing now. And the bows are very important. The bows are really important. I'm so glad that we offer bows um, because I think it's a way that uh, we challenge the ever-present threat of conceptualizing our lives, our practice, our understanding, our response to the suffering of the world and our own. So this Dharma talk this morning, probably going to cry again. Um, maybe you will too. This Dharma talk, just like every Dharma talk, is um, it's the Dharma. It's a talk on the Dharma. Um, the focus might shift a little bit or the, you know, the... Um, whatever's happening in the world might cause, you know, the words to shift a little bit. But as you know, the meaning isn't in the words. Um, and so this talk is about the Bodhisattva vow, which is impossible and endless. And it probably comes as no surprise to you that there are no answers to the suffering of the world. There are no answers. That's what the Bodhisattva vow is telling us. What there is, is our response, yours and mine, as Bodhisattvas. So let me be really specific and worldly. Um, uh, 
we have protests all over the country and rightly so. And, you know, uh, even while it is correct that there be these protests and it gets very messy, as we know, looting and violence, shootings, still we cannot be distracted um, from what caused these protests, that these protests are in response to something that happened and that keeps happening. Just in case there's someone here who doesn't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the recent murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis that happened last Monday by a white police officer who's now been arrested and is charged with third degree murder and manslaughter. That's a step in the right direction. But of course, it's not enough. And so um, it's very important for us as practitioners of the way, the way of peace, which has to mean the way of justice, because it's the way of awakening. It's the way of awakening to the fact of suffering in the world, which is what the Buddha taught. There is suffering. And there is also freedom from suffering. And that's where the rubber hits the road for us. You know, how are we free from suffering? I think a big clue here is our bowing, as I said. It's full-bodied, it's not holding back, it's maybe uncomfortable, especially when we do the nine bows or in the full moon ceremony, which is the ceremony of repentance, the ceremony of confession of our own transgressions and our own sincere, ardent wish to be happy, peaceful, and free, and to do that through our own ethical conduct. That takes ongoing effort. And we definitely don't always feel in control. We definitely don't always like it. We definitely aren't always comfortable. So what? So, you know, I wanted to share... um, that one of the things that may come up for white people, for anybody here who identifies as white, I'm talking to you and I'm talking to myself. Um, In our effort to try to be helpful, to try to understand, to try to do the right thing. You know, we might get stuck in trying to find the answers 
and to um, you know to want to say and do the right thing. Now that's wonderful, but it's a big problem if we get stuck in that and it becomes just another um, way for us to try to be in control. When in fact, I feel what this great opportunity is, is just to realize the truth of our universal vulnerability. That um, we may uh, we may say the wrong thing, we may do the wrong thing, and then if we're lucky, we may get feedback on that because we may have close friends who love us or who we love, who are directly impacted by racism, and they will tell us when we're off the mark. That's helpful. I think that's helpful for it to feel personal and for us to be trembling with confusion and still speak and still act, still respond. You know, I think this is a really good setup finally for me and I hope for you when we're offering the bows to connect with the Bodhisattva of compassion, the hearer of the cries of the world. The responder to the cries of the world, the regarder, the perceiver. You know, she's in the, the posture of royal ease, and it, it does look like she's about to stand up and act. She's got one foot on the ground already. So, you know, thinking about this, I remembered um, the marketing manager for San Francisco Zen Center. Her name's Marie. I remember she had been hired to help San Francisco Zen Center with marketing. And that's a word that makes many spiritual people nervous. It's too worldly. You know, basically it's just, we believe in what we're doing and we believe it might be helpful to other people. We just want them to know about it. <laughs> it's called marketing in the world. Or it could be communications. But I personally don't have a problem with marketing. And maybe that's why when she was um, released from duty, after not too long, maybe it made it, people uncomfortable. I, I don't know. But I remember she, we were having a conversation where she was telling me that she had been, you know, her contract was ended or whatever. And um, and we were talking about why, you know, what happened. And I think, you know, I said, well, are you getting an exit interview where you get a chance to express, you know, 
what your experience has been and what your frustration is. And, and it didn't seem like there was gonna be an exit interview. So we had one right then and there. And I remember the most important thing she said was people here at San Francisco Zen Center, all of you, me too, all of you are so afraid of making a mistake. No, I'm making some mistake. Like so afraid that you're not willing to try something bold. And, you know, having been at San Francisco Zen Center for a long time, I have great respect for how big it is and how much rides on various decisions. But I want to say to you, I want to say to us, we don't have those concerns. We're a scrappy little sangha and we have a lot of wiggle room. We can explore, we can play with this quite a bit more in taking chances, taking risks, especially when the stakes are high, risking saying and doing the wrong thing and sticking around to get the feedback and to have the opportunity, the opportunity to learn how to do it better. I'm flashing on, just right down in my hallway, my downstairs hallway that goes downstairs right outside the store, there's a big banner that perfectly fits the length of my stairs, which is perfect because stairs are about stepping. It's a big banner that Kate's students made at Montserrat that says, fix it. <laughs> and I've said before, this is perfect for us as Zen practitioners. Fair warning, so as not to fall into the absolute and get stuck there. So here's some backup. I'm calling in the heavies right now to back me up on what I'm trying to express. The first one is, I've shared it many times. It's one of my favorites. It's Nanshwan's cat. You probably all could see this coming, but this talk is being recorded. And it's going to be shared with the SCBA. I want people around the country. We've been asked to share how we're responding. And there'll be time for you to respond to. Um, but how we're, how I, how we might be meeting this second pandemic that we desperately need an inoculation for. The pandemic of racism, of institutionalized structural racism, of um, unconscious bias, of greed, hate, and delusion expressed through this filter of racism. So the monks of the Eastern and Western halls were arguing about a cat. Nanchuan picked it up and said to the monks, say the appropriate word and you'll save the cat. If you don't say the appropriate word, then it gets cut in two. The monks were silent. Nanchuan cut the cat in two. Later, Jaja returned from outside the temple and Nanchuan told him what had happened. 
Jabjo then removed his sandals, placed them on his head, and went out. Nanshuan said, if you'd been there, the cat would have been saved. There's a fight going on over a cat. Nanshuan says, say the appropriate word. Give me an appropriate response. What is an appropriate response? And if you don't, the stakes are high here. Someone is going to be sacrificed. The latest one, probably not the latest one because it's already been six days. The latest one that I know of is George Floyd. The monks were silent. There goes the cat. And then Jajo comes back to the temple and um, Nanchuan tells him what happens. Jajo takes off his shoes. He puts them on his head and he walks out. And Nanchuan says, that's all that needed to happen. Something needed to happen. Did it make sense? No. But something happened. Darlene famously said, you know, that maybe no one wanted to say the unenlightened thing. No one wanted to be found out as an imposter, a hypocrite wrong, deluded. And so they thought that they could hide out in their silence. And Darlene said, you know, maybe when asked, you know, what would you say? She said, blah, (laughs) no, anything. Something in faith that you know the Dharma's rolling, reality is rolling, it's all moving. That then something else would happen, the conversation would happen. So, another way of talking about this, and this is particularly. I really love this because this is about, you know, Emily, you'll be happy to know I finally wrote that piece for Lions Roar. I don't know if they'll publish it. I don't know if I made the deadline. They asked me to write on immigration because Melvin, the editor, told me that it's because of the work that's happening at Zen Center North Shore of doing stuff, of getting involved. that he wanted that voice to be heard. And so, you know, my whole thing is, is like, um, you guys, it's just like speaking another language. Andrea, maybe you'll relate with this. (laughs) 
when I speak Spanish, I feel like a total idiot, <laughs> but I don't care because I also feel um, fresh. <laughs> I feel like I see with new eyes. I kind of feel like a little kid, but what feels to be important is I don't care. You know, what's more important is something deeper than um, sounding good, I guess. <laughs> Anyway, here's Yunmen. Oh, my, 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 the thing that I wrote was, you know, the three words that I think are really helpful for overwhelmed white people who are well-intentioned, but don't know what to do and are spinning and maybe are, we're afraid of doing the wrong thing, or maybe, you know, because of the overwhelm, we've given up. Um, and so to the three words are break it down, you know, walk down those stairs one step at a time. And as I walk down F I X space I T. <laughs> so here's Yunman. Yunman said to the congregation, every day you come and go asking endless questions. If you were crossing a river, how would you do so? A longtime resident of the monastery responded, step. Yunmin was highly pleased with this answer. Okay, a longtime practitioner, maybe, I don't know if they were ordaining in China, but a monk a longtime meditator, years and years and years of meditation practice, knows that it's not just about what happens on the cushion. The Dharma of the second bell is stand up and step out, step forth, speak. You know, I do feel this is why we have service after Zazen and before we go forth, even if it's virtual, into the rest of our day, that we start moving as we bow and we start using our voice as we chant. We cannot cling to silence and stillness as the answer. So a longtime resident of the monastery said, you know, if you're crossing a river, how would you do so? You just step. So, you know, I, <laughs> I think that's all. I don't know. That's all. I, I, I'd like to open it up. I'd like for America to hear what other practitioners at the Zen Center North Shore have to say. If you're up for it. Please be up for it. Can you see the work of um, undoing racism, undoing white privilege? You who identify as white here. Um, 
as a practice of vulnerability. You know, and it's like in a practice of renunciation, that it's renunciation is not about me letting go of anything. Even I would say letting go of my privilege. It's more like, you know, this, this view of renunciation of, um, it has nothing to do with me choosing anything. In some way, I can't choose intimacy. (laughs) I can't choose vulnerability. We're already intimate. We're already vulnerable, whether we realize it in this life or not, in this skin as white people. And maybe that's the greatest loss for white people and our white privilege, as well as we're in, as long as we're embodied on this earth in this lifetime. You know, can we take that privilege with us as we're going into the incinerator being (laughs) cremated? No. The only thing we leave behind is our actions. You know, and, and let me just share one more thing. I haven't worked this out, but maybe you'll help me. Um, I do have a sense that nobody, nobody benefits from racism. Nobody benefits from corporate greed. Nobody benefits from the vast, you know, discrepancy in, you know, in distribution of wealth. Nobody, not even the 1% or the, you know, 0.2%, whatever it's down to right now. And why? Because the day is going to come, the moment is going to come for each one of us where we're taking our last breath. And what's that going to be like? So uh, when we say beings are numberless, I've got to save them. Let's make that really across the board. You know, let's not divide up the world between those who are worth saving and those who aren't, because we don't know. One example, concretely, let me share this. What's happening in Minneapolis, you know, for for many people, the conversation's gonna change from the obvious, gross abuse of power, the obvious action of murder with impunity on behalf of Officer Chauvin. Because of the videos, it's all right there. But some people may focus on the looting and how bad that is. So let's break that down for a moment. Two aspects of the looting I want to mention. One is there is evidence emerging, even though it's not being reported by a lot of the mainstream media, that the some of the looting, I can't tell you what percentage is, There are groups of white supremacists who are moving in to Minneapolis and inciting looting and committing acts of looting. But that's that's almost inconsequential for me because before that, there's this wonderful young woman activist who's emerging, who maybe some of you have seen, 
I don't know yet her name, but she spoke for about two minutes at a at some event somewhere, and she said, "Let's look at who the real looters are." <laughs> what about the looters? You know, from the the culture of corporate greed, who clearly don't care about the lives of the essential workers, many of whom are being forced back to work right now, right within this pandemic where the virus is everywhere and there's so little we know about it. The frontline workers who we call heroes, but who are dying from this. You know, you all know I'm on a tirade against Amazon and Whole Foods. Jeff Bezos, who, how can we break through with Mr. Bezos? How can we break through so that he'll see how valuable his workers are and he'll treat him, he'll treat them accordingly as human beings with healthcare needs. And, you know, who need adequate pay and who should be getting raises right now. So just so you know what I'm feeling right now, here's an example of blah. None of these are, none of these feelings I have are speech worthy. But you know what I'm gonna say, they are Dharma talk worthy. You know, they're not polished. They come from a place of you know, this is not okay. There is injustice in the world. There is delusion in the world. There is delusion right here. There is greed right here. There's anger right here. There's racism right here. It's all right here. I hear the clock ticking behind me in this vast silence. Can you hear it? Thank you so much for your practice. Thank you for showing up, for sitting down. Thank you in advance for responding today and every day because I know you will, because you already are. Well, maybe some of you I asked a few minutes ago and now I mean it, will share. How do you connect with your vulnerability? What is renunciation for you? How will you respond? How will you um, help George Floyd's calm crossing over for the next 49 days, the next 43 days. Please speak. Thank you. Hi, Kate. All right, Kate, we can't hear you yet. Let me put myself on mute. Thank you so much, Joan. These, these Dharma talks are just, they're just so preciously 
rich and nourishing. So thank you so much. Um, I, I, I want to share a couple of things that this talk has brought up for me. And um, the, the first one is about Sangha and the, the second one is about sacrifice. Because you, you said sacrifice in the Dharma talk and it, it rung with something that happened with me this week. And I, I'm part of a, you know, a wonderful community of philosophers from the West Coast. It's from, and we met on a big Zoom call on Friday. I was able to be one of the presenters. There were like 45 people there. And, and some of us gave little five-minute talks. And then there was a discussion. And one one person was a philosopher of Buddhism and Taoism, and she said something about Sangha, which I'd never heard before. And she said, the Sangha is, the Sangha, our community, and our friends and our family and people that we know and care about, but it's also the mountains and the rivers. And it's also the coronavirus. It's everything. It's, it's the the fires on the street, it's the policemen trying to keep order and the people trying to have the voice heard. Everything is the sangha. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way because I think of our sangha as just so special and, and the, the relationships that we have here, but it is connected. So that's something that I wanted to share. And, and the second thing is that another conversation that happened in that call was around the issue of sacrifice and, you know, and the, the, the economy and the, the workers. I mean, you know, so there's that issue of sacrifice that you also brought up. And one thing that I wanted to add, because my talk was about this project that I did, this artistic project called The Beast. And one of the conversations we had had was about this idea of sacrifice. And the answer we came up with was there's a tradition of the kudos. Instead of fighting each other, there was like a contest and then somebody got this kudos. But the, the message was that it was about creating a new ritual. And for me, you know, I don't know where this is, but we just started this community garden in one of our precious, dearest friend's back garden that she opened up. And it's like a new ritual. And I mean, for me, this is something that feels like, you know, that thing we don't understand. Let's put the shoes in our head and just kind of walk out. Let's do it. It doesn't make sense, but it's new. So I really, you know, that's where your Dharma talk leads me to, you know, step into the, the water. Just make the step. And it's the garden, you know. It's the network of gardens that we're doing. Thank you, Kate. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, I've been thinking a lot about my own speech and what to do with that. You know, we're studying the precepts, I'm studying the precepts, and I keep always catches my attention that, you know, three out of 10, I think, of the, the grave precepts are about, you know, 
about speech, this, this idle chatter, this kind of ability to kind of lose ourselves in our language. And I see that all over the place, especially on social media. Um, and I just, I struggle with that in terms of how to speak and when to speak constructively and what venue that's in and where is that. Um, and I freely admit that's a struggle for me because I don't want to spread news so fast that I think it's that we find out later it's not even true or you know is it true is it helpful is it constructive um what is my place especially with this particular you know, era of video right we have videos of people dying videos of people suffering immensely like what is my role in that uh, it feels so challenging to know what to do with that um but I am appreciative of this idea of not speaking. You know, I think that some of that even is just at home for me, literally, like in multiple levels of different relationships that I can think of, you know, how do I, how do I articulate, you know, what I feel and how I feel it and letting blah be okay sometimes. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really, you know, appreciative of that coming up for me today and, and continuing to think that through. I mean, I feel like I've been sitting in that all week. So I was appreciative to have this to, to absorb and think about that. Um, and I just quickly, you know, before, uh, when I was in grad school, I appreciate what you say, Joanne, about having people who can really, you know, burst your bubble. <laughs> um, when I was in grad school, my professor, David Bradley, he's a brilliant author. Um, an amazing teacher. He was just really wonderful to me. And, you know, here's this, like, I, I used to joke, he was the only black man in Eugene, Oregon. Um, so he stood out, you know, he was just culturally, he was just there, you know, he was so himself. And we went out one night and I will never forget this because I was 22. And he said, yeah, we started talking about football and he put on an Oakland Raiders hat and he had no ties to Oakland whatsoever. And I said, David, Oakland Raiders, really? And he said, hey, Emily, you know how they call the Dallas Cowboys America's team? And I said, sure. I said, he goes, that, that was white America's team. And I said, oh, gotcha. Yeah, I was just, I will never forget it as much as I, you know, it was just one of those small moments that just totally destroyed my perception, you know, in a good way. Uh, and I was really like, he would do that stuff all the time. And I appreciate, you know, I appreciate him um, so much for those gifts, you know, just, and, and now, you know, talking with friends and having people say, no, that's not the right way to say that. That's not the right way to do this. Let's talk, let's figure this out. It's not my job to lift you all up, right? It, you do the work <laughs> in some way. Um, I, I appreciate that too, just thinking about having other friends with us in this and, and being that support and the check at the same time. Those friendships that can sustain that are really important. So, yeah, I want to share something. Um, Emily, you mentioned the Pacific Northwest. Here's a recent story. Um, this was sent to me 
by George Binns, who is an old white guy living in Beverly. He's the guy who is one of the interviewers on what's happening on BevCam. And I've been doing a series of conversations with them. And he and I are speaking today on what happened. And we're going to be reading Chief Johns, the police chief in Beverly, public condemnation of um, the officer's conduct in Minneapolis last Monday. And by the way, so two actions you can take. Because this thing about... um, you know, being afraid to say the wrong thing is that we may end up saying nothing. And one of the signs we're being asked to hold up right now is end white silence. And one of the things that, that's one thing we can do, stand on your street corner where that sign, white people, end white silence. People walk by, maybe they'll, it'll start a conversation. What do you mean by that? You know, and what do you think that means? Do you think white silence exists? And do you think it's um, dangerous to people of color that there be white silence? Um, The second thing is many of us on this, in this session right now are live in different towns on the North shore. If your police chief has not already demand that he or she publicly condemn the actions of these officers in Minneapolis, the Chattanooga police chief, did you hear this? He said, if, if there's any officer in Chattanooga who doesn't think that what happened is wrong, you can hand in your badge now. Anyway, here's what George sent me. This picture, can you see it, of this man? Okay. And this man's story. Here's where I'm going to cry. This is what I wore to work today. On my way to get a burrito before work, I was detained by the police. I noticed the police car in the public lot behind Center Street. As I was walking away from the car, the cruiser followed me. I walked down Center Street and was about to cross over to the burrito place, and the officer got out of the car. Hey, my man, he said. He unsnapped the holster of his gun. I took my hands out of my pockets. Yes, I said. Where are you coming from? Home. Where's home? Dedham. How'd you get here? I drove. He was next to me now. Two other police cars pulled up. I was standing in in front of the bank across the street from the burrito place. I was going to get lunch before I taught my 130 class. There were cops all around me. I said nothing. I looked at the officer who addressed me. He was white, stocky, bearded. You weren't going over there, were you? He pointed down Center Street toward Hyde Square. No, I came from Dedham. What's your address? I told him. We had someone matching your description. Just try to break into a woman's house. A second police officer stood next to me, white, tall, bearded. Two police cruisers passed and would continue to circle the the block for the 35 minutes I was standing across the street from the burrito place. You fit the description, the officer said. Black male, knit hat, puffy coat. Do you have identification? It's in my wallet. May I reach into my pocket and get my wallet? Yeah. I handed him my license. I told him it did not have my current address. He walked over to a police car. The other cop, taller, wearing sunglasses, 
told me that I fit the description of someone who broke into a woman's house right down to the knit cap. Barbara Sullivan made a knit cap for me. She knitted it in pinks and browns and blues and oranges and lime green. No one has a hat like this. It doesn't fit any description that anyone would have. I looked at the second cop. I clasped my hands in front of me to stop them from shaking. For the record, I said to the second cop, I'm not a criminal, I'm a college professor. I was wearing my faculty ID around my neck, clearly visible with my photo. You fit the description. So we just have to check it out. The first cop returned and handed me my license. We have the victim and we need her to take a look at you to see if you are the person. It was at this moment that I knew that I was probably going to die. I'm not being dramatic when I say this. I was not going to get into a police car. I was not going to present myself to some victim. I was not going to let someone tell the cops that I was not guilty when I already told them that I had nothing to do with any robbery. I was not going to let them take me anywhere because if they did, the chance I was going to be accused of something I did not do rose exponentially. I knew this in my heart. I was not going anywhere with these cops and I was not going to let some white woman decide whether or not I was a criminal. Especially after I told them that I was not a criminal. This meant that I was going to resist arrest. This meant that I was not going to let the police put their hands on me. If you were wondering why people don't go with the police, I hope this explains it for you. Something weird happens when you're on the street being detained by the police. People look at you like you're a criminal. The police are detaining you, so clearly you must have done something, otherwise they wouldn't have you. No one made eye contact with me. I was hoping that someone I knew would walk down the street or come out of one of the shops or get off the 39 bus or come out of J.P. Licks and say to these cops, that's Steve Locke. What the fuck are you detaining him for? The cops decided that they would bring the victim to come view me on the street. They asked me to wait. I said nothing. I stood still. Thanks for cooperating, the second cop said. This is probably nothing, but it's our job, and you do fit the description. Five foot 11, black male, 160 pounds, but you're a little more than that. Knit hat, a little more than 160. Thanks for that, I thought. An older white woman walked behind me and up to the second cop. She turned and looked at me and then back at him. You guys sure are busy today. I noticed a black woman further down the block. She was small and concerned. She was watching what was going on. I focused on her red coat. I slowed my breathing. I looked at her from time to time. I thought, don't leave, sister. Please don't leave. The first cop said, where do you teach? Massachusetts College of Art and Design. I tugged at the lanyard that had my ID. How long you been teaching there? 13 years. We stood in silence for about 10 more minutes. An unmarked police car pulled up. The first cop went over to talk to the driver. The driver kept looking at me as the cop spoke to him. As, as the cop spoke to him, I looked directly at the driver. He got out of the car. I'm Detective Cardosa. I appreciate your cop cooperation. I said nothing. I'm sure these officers told you what's going on. They did. Where are you coming from? From my home in Dedham. How did you get here? I drove. Where is your car? It's in the lot behind Bukhara. I pointed up Center Street. Okay, the detective said. We're going to let you go. Do you have a car key you can show me? 
Yes, I said, I'm going to reach into my pocket and pull out my car key. Okay, I showed him the key to my car. The cops thanked me for my cooperation. I nodded and turned to go. Sorry for screwing up your lunch break, the second cop said. I walked back toward my car, away from the burrito place. I saw the woman in red. Thank you, I said to her. Thank you for staying. Are you okay, she said. Her small, beautiful face was lined with concern. Not really. I'm really shook up, and I have to get to work. I knew something was wrong. I was watching the whole thing. The way they are treating us now, you have to watch them. I'm so grateful you were there. I kept thinking to myself, don't leave, sister. May I give you a hug? Yes, she said. She held me as I shook. Are you sure you're okay? No, I'm not. I'm going to have a good cry in my car. I have to go teach. You're at MassArt? My friend is at MassArt. What's your name? She told me. I realized we were Facebook friends. I told her this. I'll check with you on Facebook, she said. I put my head down and walked to my car. My colleague was in our shared office and she was able to calm me down. I had about 45 minutes until my class began and I had to teach. I forgot the lesson I'd planned. I forgot the schedule. I couldn't think about how to do my job. I thought about the fact my word counted for nothing. They didn't believe that I wasn't a criminal. They had to find out. My word was not enough for them. My ID was not enough for them. My hand made one of a kind knit hat. was an object of suspicion. My Ralph Lauren quilted blazer was only a puffy coat. That white woman could just walk up to a cop and talk about me like I was an object for regard. I wanted to go back and spit in their faces. The cops were deeply, the cops were probably deeply satisfied with how they handled the interaction, how they didn't escalate the situation, how they were respectful and polite. I imagine sitting in the back of a police car while a white woman decides if I am a criminal or not. If I looked guilty, being, by the, being detained by the cops, imagine how vile I become sitting in a cruiser. I knew I could not let that happen to me. I knew if that were to happen, I would be dead. Nothing I am, nothing I do, nothing I have means anything because I fit the description. I had to confess to my students that I was a bit out of it today and I asked them to bear with me. I had to teach. After class, I was supposed to go to the openings for first Friday. I went home. That was May 17th. And the only thing, reason you don't know about it is because he didn't get murdered. Very neat. At the very least, let's live in truth. We have to find out what that truth is. And we have to keep finding out. Forever, for as long as the Zen Center North Shore exists, every single well being ceremony will include the line. For all those whose daily lives are impacted by racial prejudice and social injustice. Um, I know I cut in 
I want to make sure if there's anybody else who wants to say anything. So thanks, Joan. I'm taking my shoes off from my head and putting them back on my feet where they belong now. Thanks for speaking, Joan. Lita, yes. I am. Um, this has been on my mind. Can you hear me? This has been on my mind for a couple of days. I um, want to break silence and say something. And I have to sit with it to choose the words. And, and well, is this the right way to say it? Is the way I'm saying it going to upset somebody or anger somebody? And, so these are some of the things that come up for me. And um, you know, I, I talked to Julie, my daughter, Julia, about it, wanting to make sure that she's aware of what's going on, because I don't know if she watches news or what she does online. And, and so um, that was a good way for me to um, determine how do I break my silence with other people by having a talk with my child. Uh, so this is what's going on in the world and how do you feel about it and how are you responding? Um, I'm happy with her response and knowing the kind of person she is and actions she's taken. Um, my concerns for myself though are the likelihood of wrong view or wrong speech coming out because um, I'm very anti-government, anti-police. And while systemic racism is um, a contributing factor to uh, these things that happen, particularly to George Floyd, there's also a second issue that is relevant, um, maybe not in this particular incident, but in other, uh, is the uh, uh, police in general are violent. Their job itself is violence. Um, it's enforcement by the end of a gun, uh, uh, use of power to control a population. Uh, the fact that they are armed like a soldier is an act of violence. Their mere presence is an act of violence. And that's what I have an issue with. And I, over the last few days, um, I know I'm not good with expressing myself in written form. Um, one of the reasons I don't like email, I, I'm more comfortable with speaking. So I've been practicing with my phone, recording myself talking. I've been having conversations with myself to practice articulation. They can play this back. Well, how do I sound? Let me see what other people see when I'm speaking. Okay, so this is what I look like. Okay, this is what I sound like. And um, so I think it's good for me anyway to to publicly vow, I vow to not be a bystander 
I vow with this body to intervene. And if begging you to stop this public execution, if I'm witnessing a public execution and saying stop doesn't work, I vow to use this body to intervene. I will not just sit and watch somebody die. Thank you, Lita. <clears throat> Thank you so much. I um, it makes me think, and there are other people who may want to speak, and we'll we'll make sure there's time for that. Okay, Bob, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, as many of you know, I used to be a cop. I was a state trooper in Connecticut, and I was also a cop in Colorado. So, I've been on both sides of the issues that are in the, uh, the news. Um, and I come from a family of my, my father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather were all cops. In fact, my great-grandfather was the first mounted policeman in Worcester, Massachusetts, and he was a, a captain. And he and my grandfather didn't even carry their guns. They would walk patrol through the city of Worcester and they would, they had great relations with the people. And in fact, my father, my, uh, my father was a sergeant and in fact, he would take care of people as if they were, you know, family and walk kids home who were in trouble and have their parents administer justice more than uh, having the system do it. Now I understand Worcester's a hugely bigger place than it used to be. And there's a lot more crime and, and um, gangs and whatnot. And for whatever reason, you can find social problems that contribute to gangs and such. But <clears throat> I, I, I'm adding to the pot the notion that Police officers are people too. And for whatever reason they go bad, they go bad because of either mental illness or systemically ill systems. I think ill systems start at the top. And the top of our systems in this country are very ill right now. In fact, you see the bifurcation of us versus them in many, many, many arenas. And I think it's instigated by powers that may be subliminal or may be institutionalized. And I think that some of those benefit from us being separated, us versus them. When I was in uh, the state patrol, there was none of this treatment of people badly. They were highly trained, most of them ex-Marines, most of them very respectful. I never saw the racism that is happening now and it makes my skin crawl, to be honest with you. I see it as a huge lack of training, a huge lack of sensitivity, and it would never have been allowed in any of the department and there would have been so much social pressure among the troopers that a guy who acted badly 
would been, would have been ostracized and he would have quit. He would have been treated so badly by the rest of the troopers that he would have quit because the, the standard of treating the public correctly was so high in my troop. I know that's difficult for you to believe now from what you've seen, but that's the way it was. So I have some, those were some good examples, but they seem to be gone because I've seen some horrible stuff about the Connecticut State Police in the news lately too, from where I came from that makes my skin crawl. So what do you do? It has to start from the top and, and come down as a culture, I think. Um, but the culture at the top has no incentive to change because it likes being at the top and being in power. So we have to fire it. That means that the people have to speak and not be afraid to speak. Why are we afraid to speak? Because we're afraid to offend our neighbor who might be now considering themselves the other. We're not the other, we are all the same really, but we feel like the other now because, you know, four big corporations and 12 brokers and a few senators have decided that everyone is on a tribal page. <laughs> it's crazy. It makes us ill. So, our system is ill. I think most people are basically healthy, but don't know what to do. We lack good leaders. I mean, I think they're out there, but we have to rise up. November can't come soon enough for me. And I don't want people to think that all cops are bad because really, just like I'm a nurse now, I approached policing the same way I uh, approached being a nurse. Did it to help people. Serve. Thank you. Um, there was the, uh, uh, the lawyer, I think, in maybe Los Angeles, who had did a lot, done a lot of wrongful death suits. And uh, she worked with the Los Angeles Police Department, and they did you know, find a way to kind of clean this stuff up. And so, you know, there are systemic problems and you can fix them if you can get people to kind of go along with that. Movement right now happening, because Bob, I appreciate so much this point of view um, that um, the police there's, there's a, a document and I can circulate it to you. It's going around about things to do instead of calling the police. You know, like maybe the white woman who was in Central Park who called the police, you know, how things get, the police come and they, they need to respond. Like what else can we do before we pick up the phone and call 911? And I think for me, this is, I, I was wondering where it's coming from because it's some of the people from beyond who are, starting to really talk about this beyond is the, the Boston Immigration Justice Accompaniment Network. But one of the aspects I think that's really important in terms of not othering the police and not you know, making them into some monolithic, monolithic bad guy 
is also the inordinate pressure on police right now to deal with mental health issues, like on the street of the people that they show up for, the drugs, you know, domestic violence, all kinds of stuff that the police aren't necessarily trained to deal with when they, they show up on the scene. So there are a couple asks I want to make of you. One, back to this police chief, demanding of your police chief. This is, you know, I was hesitating about using the word demand because there's a way in which we can we can work with our police chief as a team to hear the concerns that the police might have about, you know, if you, what is it, crossing the thin blue line, Bob? Is that what it's called? You know, like the honor, the code of honor that you stick together because police need each other, you know, for backup, literally, when they're responding in dangerous situations. So you want to be careful. That's that there's something in there that needs to be upheld, this, this solidarity this, that you can count on your partner. But where does it become enabling clearly with the partner of Officer Chauvin just standing by and watching this whole thing play out? So we need to be a team. You know, I think practitioners, clergy, teachers, healthcare personnel, everybody who's available to meet with the police, you know, maybe you can be part of organizing a community meeting with your police department, a community conversation, Lita, where you can express what you feel you would do in a situation like that. Chief John needs to know that that's where you're going to go if it happens in Beverly. (laughs) That would be good to talk it through before it actually happens so that he knows that there are people who are ready to do that. So let's not let it get to that point. So I think it's really important for each one of us, you know, the people we've heard from and Andrea, let me pause here. Andrea, please go ahead and speak. Whatever you wanted to say. Oh, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. Uh, no, thank you very much, everyone, for all this. Uh, very, very, very much. I think also, Bob, so important what you said. It's so important to remember because this is the key that the problem is that we are divided. Uh, and we are all in the same boat. But the problem that I find in all this is that we are all preaching to the converted. So the difficulty of taking action, individual action. So I was thinking, what do I do myself? Okay, instead of, I will agree with whatever all of you are going to say, 100%. Okay, and I will. So the problem is how, and I agree 100% with what Bob said, power is never going to change. Because they want to be power. They are in power because they are fearful and they need power. So whatever comes has to come from below. Uh, in my personal case, going back to your question at the very beginning, what are you willing to do? I, ha- I think I have to put the body. So when there are demonstrations, just be a number with yelling or chanting. And this is basically what I've done all my life. And I also, I guess, I'm not pessimistic, but I am, I think, realistic in thinking that this is always going to happen, that we can be here, like the, the presence of suffering or evil or whatever you want to call it, is always going to be there because it's part of human nature. We are not going to make it better. It will increase maybe a little better. But the important thing is the act I do now how I act now at this moment as a human being confronting with this without any hope that it's going to be better. I don't know if it is better, better, good. 
but you know what I mean? It's part of what reality is. And ignoring that, thinking that they are the bad guys, that they don't get it, is not getting reality as reality is. Sorry, because, you know, coming from Argentina, I've been in this since my 20s, going to one million demonstrations, and it's always the same, basically. And it doesn't matter. It will always be the same. But I have to put the body and go to the, to the demonstration, whatever happens. Thank you. Andrea, yes, thank you. And to say that there's, there's one happening in Boston, Boston uh, Black Lives Matter is organizing six o'clock in Boston today. For those who, yeah, for those who wanna do that, I'm gonna try to remember who's here and I can send it out to you. That's one thing to do. You know, here's an array of things, choose one thing. So at least you can do all of them, but at least one thing. Because even though I agree, Andrea, that we are preaching to the choir here in terms of this is wrong, what happened? I don't believe that we all agree that we each need to do something and will do something tangible. And that's the difference. So I'm asking you to do one tangible thing today. Maybe you can go to the demonstration, wear your mask and be, be safe, be as safe as you can be still in a protest, six feet, if you can swing it. Um, get a sign. If it doesn't say end white silence, something else and make it visible, white people, be visible. I want to do a meditation tomorrow night for the social justice group. I propose this, um, that maybe we, we sit outside social distance and we have signs that say black lives matter and we have signs that say end white silence. You know, that's one thing we can be sitting, meditating and, you know, expounding that. Um, there's also working with your police chief, calling your police chief, if they haven't already, you know, said something, calling your mayor, calling all your reps and your senators to just voice your feeling about this. Donate to the wonderful groups, black led groups in Minneapolis who are doing incredible work. Um, go to a surge meeting online. And maybe there are other ideas you have that you can do, but of those, I think one tangible thing, just do it. Anybody who hasn't spoken want to say anything? Lita, you mentioned this, invoking your daughter, Julia, in the Thursday night class. Dave went to get his daughter, Kara, to join us, or his teenage daughter in the discussion around um, racism and how we can respond, how we can act. And so for Rob and for Dave, you also have children. Um, I'm sure you're already doing this. And Marianne, hi Marianne. <laughs> it's nice to see you, thank you for being here. You know, maybe that's what it is today in the course of your day, maybe a way to engage with your children around this. I think especially young people who are having so much difficulty, even before the pandemic, even before this latest major event, the protests. Um, I've always suspected that with young people, a big problem is the denial of the adults and the inaction and the passivity of the adults. Maybe having checking in with your young people, your teenage children, about this might move some energy. I don't think we should, I think it's, um, 
I don't think we need to see racism as a whole one other thing that we have to deal with. <laughs> I think as bodhisattvas, this is precisely our practice. It's just a, you know, slightly different view of it, a slightly different window that opens into the practice of liberation and peace and happiness for, for everyone. All right, let's take refuge. Put your hands together, palm to palm. Emily, would you please lead us? I think you can just go for it. I don't think we need it. Uram Saranam Gachami Dhamam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Duty Ampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Duty Ampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Dutiyam bi sangam saranam gachami. Tatiyam bi buddham saranam gachami. Tatiyam bi dhamam saranam gachami. Tatiyam bi sangam saranam gachami. You know, we just we just chanted, we just said, I take refuge in awakening to the truth with each other with each other on the screen right now, with the wider Sangha that includes all the protesters throughout the world, and that yes, includes the mountains and the rivers and the crickets and the birds, and it includes the police officers and the immigrants and includes everybody. And if you do go to a protest, in addition to wearing your mask and keeping a safe distance, please, Connect with the infinite blue sky above, the infinite possibility, even as you ground yourself on Mother Earth, let her support you. Okay, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.